Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Andrew Berry. We are here to continue on, uh, on when we left off last episode, which, uh, in which we were talking about the, basically the history of evolutionary thought. And today we're going to pick up on that and continue. So Dr. Berry, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Ah, very nice to be back, Ricardo. Okay, so, I mean, let's perhaps take a, a step back and talk about population genetics and genetics more generally. So, uh, I mean, when exactly did population genetics uh, develop? Uh, and, uh, I mean, what were some of the earliest insights coming from there? Well, I think we have to start in good textbook fashion with Hardy Weinberg which was this very fundamental, very straightforward observation, which was made independently by multiple people. Uh, yes, Hardy, the mathematician at Cambridge, Weinberg in Germany, and I think Chip Verikoff in uh, Russia as well, all um, more or less around the same time. Uh, and that is, if you like, the essence of the marriage between Mendel and Darwinian processes, Hardy Weinberg is Mendel at a population scale. So that was, if you like, the critical step in terms of bringing Darwin to genetics. But as you know, I'm sure there was this protracted struggle between the so-called biometricians who were interested in continuous variation and the Mendelians who focused obviously on discrete binary, if you like, discontinuous, non-continuous variation. So Mendel's wrinkled and round peas, always purple and white flowers and so on. Uh, and it was, you know, it's a famous episode in the history of science. And it's a sort of beautiful instance of the history of science because it shows how it works. It's this sort of dialectic. You've got two points of view. And, they, and, and the two camps come to epitomize the extremes. Yes, everything is discontinuous, everything is discrete, I'm a Mendelian. No, everything is completely continuous, everything is a bell-shaped curve, if you like, I'm a biometrician. Um, and, and then and the two sides hang out on either side and fling mud across the abyss at each other, and nobody agrees with uh, it can actually come to any compromise. And it was only, I mean, famously, it was a paper by R.A. Fisher, in uh, I think 1917 or 1918 that finally put that to bed with the very simple observation that yes, discrete Mendelian characters can underlie continuous variation if you've got a polygenic system. In other words, that the trait you're interested in is determined not by one, not by two, but by multiple loci. That plus uh, an overlay of some environmental variations. So yes, you and I, Ricardo, might be, quote, genetically programmed to be exactly one meter, 80 centimeters tall, but you, by virtue of living in Portugal and having a wonderful um, high quality diet are rather taller than that, whereas I, rise, raised in the blighted British Isles and raised on a diet entirely of fish and chips, um, am rather under, um, one meter eighty. In other words, the uh, the environmental overlay. So that and, the, and that is, if you like, finally bringing together Mendel and Darwin. We've got them together. Uh, 
then we have the development of true population uh, genetics, theoretical population genetics. And so the key players, the famous figures are again Fisher, R.A. Fisher, J.B.S. Haldane, also in the UK, Sewell Wright, important figure in the U.S. Um, but one of the interesting things about this early phase of genetics is when you've still got Morgan doing his fundamental fly work and so on, is there's not really much of a distinction between genetics and population genetics. Today, obviously, you take a course on genetics, a student takes a course on genetics, and then they take a more advanced course on population genetics. But to start with, it was everything was seen as part and parcel of the same basic set of processes. So you've got people who are fundamentally biochemical geneticists like H.J. Muller also thinking in a very effective way about what today we would call population genetic processes. So it was over the 20s and 30s, these guys did the math basically to come up with what is, let's face it, an exquisite theoretical apparatus for following the fate of alleles in populations ruled by two things, Mendel, and two, the demography and the population dynamics of the populations. So that, in a nutshell, and it really is a rather brief nutshell, is, uh, if you like, the origins of population genetics. Mm -hmm. But uh, wasn't it people like JBS Alden that gave the, provided the basis for then theories like, for example, uh, inclusive fitness theory? Yes, so uh, this is moving forward. Uh, one of the things that most disturbed poor old Darwin was apparently what you might call non-Darwinian behavior or, or traits in organisms. So, you know, that's why he came up with sexual selection. For a start, why would you, why would the poor old peacock have the stupid tail? Right. It's clearly natural selection hates it. It's costly to produce. It, it advertises your presence to predators or when a predator comes after you, it encumbers you as you try to escape. So hence his uh, come out with sexual selection. So this is a sort of orthogonal form of selection where this is about access to mates. But so that's one. He's got that one. But the second one is uh, individuals within a species, within a population that will behave either in a true an altruistic manner in that they are doing something to help somebody else another member of the population at a cost to themselves or in the most extreme case that altruism uh extends to so-called reproductive altruism where i forego rep reproduction in order to facilitate your reproduction ricardo which is surprisingly generous of me i have to say uh and the canonical case of course is social insects uh, the honeybee worker is uh, non-reproductive. What she's doing is laboring on behalf of the colony in order to produce more sisters. So she's helping her mother, the queen, produce more offspring. Uh, and, and, and this famously was a conundrum. Natural selection seems to suggest, hello, <clears throat> you should be producing offspring as effectively and efficiently as you possibly can. That's what it's all about. So how can this arise? And there were hints in the writings of both uh, Haldane and Fisher as to the so-called inclusive fitness solution. Neither of them fully fleshed it out. There's this fantastic anecdote told about uh, 
Haldane is scribbling out some simple computations on the back of a beer mat in a pub in the UK. It would be a beer mat. This is the, the pub equivalent of the back of an envelope, uh, in which he says uh, <clears throat> he would give his life for two siblings, four cousins, and so on. So he's doing this sort of uh, the extent of genetic overlap between one individual and a related individual. Again, just pure mental, what proportion of the alleles that my sibling has do I have, and so on. Uh, and the story goes on further that he, he announced this while standing on a table in the pub and then fell off, and that was that was why the theory got no further developed. <clears throat> I'm not going to defend that particular claim, but it's a nice one. So famously, it wasn't until uh, W.D. Hamilton in the early 60s uh, took this problem on. And I'm sure Bill, if he were alive today, would... In fact, he's written about this. He's written commentaries on his papers in his curiously entitled Narrow Roads in, Gene, in Gene Land, uh, a couple of sort of retrospective volumes in which his key papers are republished with commentary on what he was thinking, what the motivation was, and what the inspiration was, uh, written by Hamilton himself. Um, and his famous insight, of course, is more or less the same insight that Haldane had while standing on that pub table. Uh, <clears throat> namely, there are two ways to pass your genes on to the next generation. Either you can pass them on directly, that's the sort of standard way, if you like, or <clears throat> in light of the fact that your relatives uh, share genes with you, obviously they're diluted versions of you, unless you happen to be clonal, which makes life a lot easier, in fact. Uh, if they're diluted versions, that means that you have to, uh, if you're going to pass on your genes with the same efficiency as you would doing it directly, you've got to, you've got to produce more cousins or more nephews or more nieces or whatever they are, uh, corresponding to the extent of relatedness. And that is what worker bees are doing. And, it, uh, and this is somewhat complicated, well, not somewhat complicated, it's definitely complicated by the unusual genetics of social insects. They have this so-called haplodiploid system, whereby females are diploid, they have two copies of everything. Males are the product of unfertilized eggs. So they are haploid, they only have a single copy of everything. Um, happily, this is just an informal chat online, so I don't actually have to pull out a slide and do the do the mechanics and the calculations to show you that. But the fact of the matter is this: that a worker bee is more closely related to her sister because of this weird asymmetry in uh, the genetic system than she would be to her own offspring. So, from a purely evolutionary passing on your own genes point of view, it makes more sense for her to produce more sisters, i.e. to be a worker and facilitate mum, the queen, to produce more offspring than it does to produce her own. So that, uh, you know, uh, plenty of people will claim that's the most significant insight post-Darwin, the most ex significant expansion of Darwin's ideas. And, and look, that's certainly a defensible position. I think there's so many extraordinary, remarkable, interesting things which we've gathered within the framework of Darwin. Because the point is, inclusive fitness theory is absolutely within 
Darwinian thinking. It, it expands it because Darwin hadn't fully thought out this idea of relatedness and, and passing on genetic material that way. But it's still, it's not a departure, if you like, from the origin of species. And what I'm saying is, yes, that's an important one, but there's so much other stuff, much of it absolutely inconceivable to Darwin, right? And I, I think probably the big one has to be our exploration of genomes, and not just genomes, but our discovery, our measuring of, our assessment of, our modeling of patterns of genetic variation in natural populations. So, as I said, with all due respect to Hamilton, um, I, I think that inclusive fitness, kin selection theory, call it what you will, gets perhaps more airplay as the one great mega step forward than perhaps it deserves, because there are lots of mega steps out there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, is, was there anything that changed fundamentally when in the 50s people discovered the structure of DNA? Because it seems that even before that, people were already making uh, new wake breakthroughs in terms of uh, understanding how genetics worked. Um, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, yes, 1953, uh, the double helix was a watershed moment in the history of molecular biology and in the history of genetics as a result. <clears throat> but in terms of the impact of that discovery on understanding of evolution, uh, sort of, or evolutionary process, I should say, there's a pretty long lag. So, yes, it's 53 sets the ball rolling. And, but it's not until the mid-1970s where we've got the uh, development of DNA sequencing methods. So that is when finally, if you like, DNA met evolutionary thinking. So yes, it, evolution has piggybacked on the molecular biology revolution, but it wasn't. it's not the discovery of the double helix per se that was the critical insight. And, and this is why when I say I think this is sort of a, a mega transformation in our science is the understanding and measurement, if you like, of genetic variation. Now, think of Haldane, think of that generation of scientists. What are they looking at when they're studying genetic variation? Well, famously, there's a famous paper written by Haldane in defense of beanbag genetics, because they knew so little about the actual structure of the underlying genetic variation in organisms that the theory was just basically beads on a string. Okay, so then each bead is a gene and a string is a chromosome, and you make that sort of simplifying assumption, and it's not too bad. Actually, it's a pretty reasonable assumption, but that was the sort of state of the knowledge and there was no really effective way to validate that empirically. Now, with the double helix, obviously we now have a sense of what those beads are, they're strings of A's, C's, G's and T's. Uh, exactly how many A's, C's and G's and T's make up a single gene is still for the future, if you, if you see what I mean. But um, if you like, before, the 70s and the advent of DNA sequencing, we had two technologies um, which could throw light on genetic variation in nature. One is 
protein sequencing, extremely inefficient, extremely expensive, extremely clumsy. Um, and the other, which was introduced to population biology in 1966 by Lewinton and Hubby, was so-called gel electrophoresis. Now, this is huge because the traits, when we look, say, look at human genetic variation, uh, look, it's manifest. And we know that traits breed true and so on and so forth. Um, but do we have an understanding from pedigrees or even from simple breeding experiments? I'm not, we're doing simple breeding experiments, but I mean in rodents or whatever, of most of the traits we're interested in, no. Even the sort of canonical textbook examples like eye color, oh, there's a single locus and, and two alleles, brown is dominant to blue, that's wrong, right? It's uh, polygenic. There are many different, yes, with limited, some with limited effects, but all with an effect. That's the critical take home. You can't do population genetics if you don't understand the underlying genetic structure of the traits you're interested in. And most of the traits you're interested in, if you're just looking at phenotypes, are too complicated to infer the genetic basis. Yes, you can infer the genetic basis if it's monogenic, if it's a simple Mendelian trait. And yes, we can do that. We've got blood groups, for example, in humans. Fine, that's one thing. And But humans give us very little else. Is it hairy ears on the Y chromosome? So, I mean, you know, it's kind of ridiculous how few simple monogenic traits we can we can assess in humans, okay? Which means, of course, that early population geneticists had to go elsewhere. Drosophila famously yielded its uh, polytene chromosomes, so you can look at differences in chromosome structure through the microscope, whether you've got flipped sections of the chromosome, an inversion or part of this chromosome, part on this chromosome. This is, you can identify through the staining, bending pattern of the chromosomes. That's fruit flies. But then, for instance, in the UK, there was a long tradition of studying sapia. Sapia is a snail with a rather attractive colored, stripy uh, uh, shell pattern. And you can do the genetics on that. It's fairly simple. The, there are a, a few loci, a handful of loci that determine the color and the number and the nature of the banding of these snails. And then you go out in the field and you find that population one over here has a lot of yellow uh, shells with three bands and the population two over here has a lot of pink shells with uh, many bands and so on. And then you can start asking questions. Why do we see these differences? Is natural selection operating in a different direction of this population and so on? But, but that's pathetic. That's all they had, right? A few obscure, weird often, organisms that they could just get some kind of handle on genetic variation. Then in 1966, bang, we have this crude, by today's standards, then of course state-of-the-art process, where you can take your organism, and if it's a small one, you can grind up the whole thing, or if it's a big one, like a human being, you take blood or some tissue or whatever it is, grind that up, run that out on a gel electric field, just the same as you do DNA fragments today. And then the clever part was that you could stain the gel, the whole gel, for some enzyme activity that you're interested in. So say you're interested in esterase, you use some clever biochemistry such that you add the esterase substrate, it 
does its catalysis and you've wired the biochemistry such that it produces a, a blue color or a stain or whatever. Um, so you now know where the esterase proteins in this sample have migrated on the gel. That's the first time we can really get a handle on the extent and scope of genetic variation in natural populations. That's huge. The theory of natural selection is a theory of genetic variation, but we couldn't access genetic variation until, well, more than 100 years after the publication of The Origin of Species. And by the way, electrophoresis is a pretty lousy way to assess genetic variation. I mean, in terms, you miss an enormous amount. One, you're only reviewing amino acid differences. So you're missing all the silent positions because if you've got a serine at position 19 in your protein, you might have a completely different third position between individual one and two, but you've got still got a serine there because you've got complete redundancy in the third position of that um, base pair triplet, that codon. Uh, you're missing that. If you've got a new amino acid, which doesn't change the charge, so you've got a substitution, you've got a new amino acid, doesn't change the charge of the protein, it's going to migrate the same in your gel. So you're going to miss that as well. Uh, then the other category, of course, so you, you'll catch charge-changing uh, amino acid substitutions and, uh, and deletions and insertions. So you've actually now got different sizes of the two different alleles. So that's a fairly small subclass of the total amount of genetic variation out there, but that's what you're getting with gel electrophoresis 1966. And suddenly there it is, genetic variation for everyone to see. And we can start, and it doesn't have to be our favorite species, our model species, it doesn't have to be Drosophila melanogaster, it doesn't have to be Homo sapiens. We can do this to anything because everything has an esterase enzyme, so we can use that same biochemical assay for esterase activity on a grind up gel run of any species we want. Uh, that is an enormous moment in the history of evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. But since then, have you, have we gotten any new insights into how, I mean, were we able to derive any new evolutionary insights by knowing how genetic genetics works? Uh, yes. Um, well, when you say by knowing how genetics works, by, by assessing patterns of variation in natural mm -hmm. populations. Yes, I would say so. Uh, not in the sort of definitive, clean, theoretical way, but in a profoundly important empirical way, which, uh, and it, it comes down to a, a big controversy through the 70s and 80s, if you like, which was the so-called neutral theory. So one response to this discovery by the application of gel electrophoresis to all this variation that we find in natural populations uh, was brilliantly articulated by Mutu Kimura in 1968 when he advanced what he called the neutral theory of molecular evolution. And it's, it's a beautifully simple idea. He's saying that most of the genetic variation out there does not matter. They are neutral substitutions. 
That means natural selection does not care about most of the genetic variation we see out there, and the fate of those variants is therefore governed by stochastic factors, basically genetic drift. So it's just going to, it's going on sort of on a. If this is allele frequency, this is time. It's going to go on a sort of drunkard's walk, a, a Markovian uh, stroll through allele frequency space. Um, so that's what that's variation within a species. But what does that mean? Occasionally, you're going to get that Markovian walk to fixation to 100%. So that new mutation has, has jiggled its way through time to 100%. What does that mean? That means that now the species is fixed for that new variant, which means now that's a difference between species A, where that changes occurred, and, and species B, derived from a fairly recent common ancestor. So. The neutral theory's claim is twofold. One is that most of the variation we see in populations are just doing this, right? This is stochastic, drift-driven uh, traits. But two, when we compare sequences of DNA, let's say, between two closely related species, so that could be between humans and chimpanzees, and we find a whole bunch of difference. We find, what, famously about 1% difference or whatever it is. Kimura is saying that Probably almost all, and this is the issue, how, how close to all of those differences are neutral. In other words, they don't matter. They were maybe variation that arose in a third position in a, in a serine codon, and you've still got a serine, so natural selection doesn't care, right? Um, the, the differences, in short, that we see at the molecular level amongst species are largely neutral, okay? That's, and it's a beautiful theory because the joy of neutrality is you're throwing out a difficult to estimate parameter, which is the strength of selection. There's no selection, so you don't have to worry about it. Uh, and therefore you can model very precisely the stochastic outcomes of these various uh, neutral scenarios. And I would say, that the neutral theory, partly because it was so compelling, one, partly because our capacity to test the neutral theory was very limited. The neutral theory became sort of predominant in the 70s. Most people looked at genetic variation as indeed neutral. Most people looked at variation which had accrued between species as indeed neutral. Now, this is the shift. With the advent of DNA sequencing, and specifically with the capacity to sequence a lot of things, so we probably have to wait for the invention of PCR, polymerase chain reaction, which allowed us to go into our favorite species, target a particular gene, and in 500 individuals sequence the same thing, and then we can start asking questions. We can ask questions, obviously, not just about amino acid substitutions, but about frequencies of silent substitutions, uh, synonymous changes, and so on. Um, with that came the statistical development of tests that allow us to distinguish between selective and neutral outcomes in the selective well, the selective or the neutral process. So we actually have the statistical power to distinguish between a selective scenario and a neutral scenario. So that's a, that's a critical stuff. The most famous test associated with that, I would say, was the McDonald 
Kreitman test, which I think came out in 1991. So that's what God, now that's 30 years ago. Um, and there's been plenty of really interesting and significant developments since. But the idea is we now have the ability to gather appropriate data and to the statistical skills to disentangle neutral outcomes and selectively driven outcomes. And so we can ask the question, and this seems to me to be absolutely to the heart of the evolutionary process, is what proportion of evolution is random stochastic drift driven wobble, wobble, wobble through a little frequency space? And what proportion of it is that is the sound of positive selection, which is taking a beneficial mutation and sweeping it to fixation. What proportion is neutral or what proportion is selection? And I'm biased. I'm a selection person. Um, I would say that the more we look, the more we see the pervasive and powerful influence of natural selection in shaping patterns of variation, patterns of differentiation across genomes. So what I'm suggesting is 66 allozymes that prompts 68, the genesis of the neutral theory. And then the neutral theory, because it's so elegant, so simple, and explains so much of the admittedly not very strong data, given that we're using allozymes, we're not really digging into the heart and soul of patterns of genetic variation. For the 70s and 80s was the go-to explanation for what we saw in nature. With sequencing 76 PCR, when was that? About 1987, 88. Um, and then that changed the face of data availability and made accessible pure DNA sequence. So no longer were we just looking at protein sequences or whatever, we've got DNA sequence. And then layered on top of that, the statistical tests of which McDonald Kreitman is the famous one. Now we can get a handle on what's happening. And the pendulum has swung from neutrality to selection. Mm -hmm. But how can we detect adaptive evolution on the level of the genome? Uh, so that, that's a kind of a grand question, a really interesting one. Uh, it depends at what time scale, okay? Are you going to use slightly different tools depending on the time depth we're interested in. But what I'm going to focus on is a very simple idea, which is a selective sweep. A selective sweep uh, depends on uh, the notion of genetic hitchhiking, which is actually introduced a long time ago by John Maynard Smith and Haig, I think 1974. This is a theoretical paper. They pointed out that if you've got a, well, let's say we've got uh, 10 different chromosomes which differ by neutral variation, okay? So we've got 10 different sequences of this chromosome uh, and it's scattered through the, through the population, all 10 different, so uh, different frequencies in our population. Now, and they're all neutral, so it doesn't matter. Now let's say on chromosome eight, a new mutation arises at, on, at a particular locus, a new mutation that 
Or let's say these are zebras that makes them run faster. Obviously, this is a rather simplified version of things. Okay, so we've got the run faster allele mutation has arisen on chromosome eight. Now, and obviously, the faster running zebra is going to leave more little zebras, and then those zebras are going to have more little zebras, and so on. So this is positive natural selection at work. Good. Um, What's going to happen? So that the, the beneficial mutation is going to increase in frequency. Okay. Now let's take the extreme case. Let's imagine there's no recombination throughout this chromosome. I mean, so that's that doesn't generally apply, but let's, this is just for heuristic purposes. Now, as the frequency of the favored mutation increases, then it's dragging up the entirety of chromosome eight, right? because the, the only way we can transfer the beneficial allele onto chromosome seven or onto chromosome six or onto chromosome nine is through recombination. And so if there's no recombination, at the end of the day, when we've gone to 100% for the beneficial mutation, at the end of the day, we've gone to 100% chromosome eight, right? So what we've done is we've eliminated all the variation for on chromosome eight. There is no variation in the population at the end of that process, okay? And we call this a selective sweep for two reasons. One, the beneficial mutation is sweeping through the population to fixation, but also like a broom, we're sweeping away the variation along chromosome eight, right? Now, let's put in a more realistic requirement, which is there's some recombination on chromosome eight. So chromosome eight is going to occasionally, is when it's a heterokaryotype with chromosome seven, you're going to get some exchange and so on and so forth. Canonical uh, recombination, classical, Mendel well, uh, Mendel didn't really have to deal with it, so uh, <laughs> it's not Mendelian recombination. Uh, what now happens? Well, obviously, the beneficial mutation is going to get distributed onto the other chromosomes, right? But again, statistically, probably there's going to be a region very close on either side of the focal of the beneficial mutation, which is not shuffled. So it's going to be the ends of chromosomes which are exchanged and so on. So you're still going to, at the end of the selective sweep, when you look along that region throughout the whole, for the whole chromosome across the entire species, yes, you'll find plenty of variation at the ends of the chromosomes. Let's, but here is the position the beneficial mutation, but flanking it is an area maybe of zero variation or very reduced variation, the selective sweep. So in other words, recombination is going to limit the extent of the impact of the selective sweep, okay? And obviously this is going to depend on multiple parameters like obviously the rate of recombination and also the speed and efficiency of natural selection. Uh, if selection is very strong, then this is all happening very fast, and therefore there's not enough time for recombination to really happen, whereas if it's only a tiny selective advantage, and this is really going to increase over very, very long periods of time, then there is plenty of time for recombination to occur. But so that, in two scenarios, gives you a test for what natural selection is doing against a neutrality null hypothesis. 
Beautiful example, uh, lactase persistence in humans. So I don't know what the latest archaeological date is, but one of the smarter things human did, humans have done is domesticate various sources of dairy, cattle, obviously, camels, goats, sheep, whatever. You can drink their milk. And milk is a pretty damn good thing to drink, if you think about it. Milk is designed as perfect baby mammal food, right? So this is the, this is basically a balanced diet for a growing baby mammal. We're all mammals, people. Uh, so milk is a pretty ideal um, food stuff. Dairy in general is pretty, pretty ideal. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a significant advantage to being able to use this now sustained source of milk throughout our lives. Normally, of course, prior to the domestication of cattle and so on, uh, you obviously had a lot of milk early on, maybe for 18 months or whatever, where you're, you're uh, gaining milk, good mammalian milk from your mother. After that, of course, that's the end of your exposure to milk. And famously, lactose is the major carbohydrate in mammalian milk. And you have an enzyme which is active in breaking down that lactose, uh, and that enzyme is lactase. Now, there is no point in producing lactase if you're not encountering lactose. And typically, babies do not encounter lactose after the age of 18 months, two years, or whenever they uh, stop when they're weaned from their mothers. So the lactase gene is switched off very smart but you need lactase if you're consuming dairy if you're part of one of these societies which has created a lifelong supply of lactose and as you know if you're lactose intolerant in other words you don't have an active lactase gene you've got some issues because you basically can't digest lactose and well uh, i don't think i need to tell people this that can be a bad experience uh, so what we've seen, and this is stunning because it's so recent. So uh, 10,000 years ago, we domesticated wheat, homo sapiens, domesticated cattle, cows, camels, and so on. And in that time, we've seen selective sweep, in fact, selective sweeps in favor of lactase tolerance uh, in our species. So what does that mean? Well, there's the gene for lactase. That is actually, the, the actual protein encoding gene is unchanged. What we see is a mutation or mutations in the code in the regulatory area, which keeps that gene switched on. In other words, you keep on producing lactase, hence the phenotype lactase persistence. It's not switched off at 18 months, it's not switched off at two years. It sustains activity throughout uh, your lifetime. Uh, so that's our adaptive mutation. And this is, this is in some ways the coolest part of this story. That adaptive mutation has arisen multiple times in our species convergently. When I say that adaptive mutation, I'm actually talking about different mutations with the same effect. So for example, European populations uh, who are surfing, if you like, on the fertile crescent domestication of cattle have a particular mutation which keeps their lactase switched on. 
East African pastoralist populations, this is an independent domestication, so the independent acquisition of lifetime dairy, also keep their lactase gene switched on, but also with a mutation in the regulatory region, but a different mutation. So these are two independent origins of the same phenotype, namely lactase persistence, Curtis, uh, which have arisen in two separate populations. This is convergent evolution. It's actually arguably some of the best evidence of the impact of natural selection you can possibly have. So that's one. Convergent evolution is really cool. But the other thing is, if you look, if you go to a European population with high levels of lactase persistence, and you sequence the region of the chromosome, which includes the lactase gene, so you're looking at a large chunk, uh, thousands and thousands of base pairs of flanking DNA. Everyone has the same identical sequence. So what's happened? That's a canonical selective sweep. You've had the mutation arose 9,000 years ago. Maybe it was already present in the population. We don't know. And that has been forced up in frequency by positive selection very rap very rapidly. I mean, instantly by evolutionary standards. This, this star, it can't be any older than 10,000 years, right? So that's incredibly fast evolution uh, to bring that up in frequency. And there hasn't been enough time for recombination. So hence you see this huge slab of this chromosome, which is identical, okay? Now, so that is a selective sweep, if you like, which is still ongoing. Obviously at the end of the day, you're going to find uh, that there is that whole region for the entire species, assuming it's spread through the entire species. And obviously, we're a long way from that being accomplished for the lactase situation in humans. But in any selective sweep, the ultimate end product is it going to 100%. And again, you are going to have a significant area reduced variation that we see in in flanking the pertinent gene. Beautiful example in Plasmodium, uh, the malaria bad guy, uh, which responds, as you know, and this is a serious public health issue, responds under natural selection very efficiently to uh, any attempt to control it with anti-malarials. So this is sort of the same category as the evolution of antibiotic resistance. This is the resistance to anti-malarials by the malarial organism. Um, famously, one of the, we, so these are in a sense evolutionary experiments when we're asserting or exerting evolutionary pressure, natural selection on these populations. And one of the uh, most sort of significant early cases of evolution resistance was for chloroquine and we've identified a gene and a mutation which confers chloroquine resistance on plasmodium and if you do a sequencing study of plasmodium worldwide and if we've got the amount of genetic variation on the y-axis and this is just walking along a chromosome and our, our key gene is in the middle of the chromosome here on the x-axis what you see is a normal level, high level of variation, and it crashes down. And then you've got virtually no variation along the 
that part of the chromosome that includes the gene and the key mutation, and then it goes back up again. Exactly what we'd expect from a selective sweep with a, a reasonable amount of recombination underway. Uh, so these are the kind of approaches we can take to disentangle, if you like, the impact of neutrality from the impact of positive selection. And that's what evolution is about. If we can identify those moments of positive selection, positive selection is what leads to adaptation. And that's why we study evolution, because adaptation, the fit of organisms to their environment is mind boggling. It's extraordinary. So uh, changing topics now, do we know how speciation works? I mean, perhaps the sort of factors behind it? Well, it depends who you talk to is the short answer to that question. <laughs> um, so I would say we have uh, a pretty solid understanding of speciation. I get in trouble with my colleague here, Jim Mallett, uh, who would argue that I'm a little bit sanguine in and perhaps too traditional in my interpretation. Um, but also in terms of colleagues with at Harvard, now long since dead, but the uh, sort of architect of our modern ideas on speciation, or at least our traditional modern ideas, uh, was Ernst Meyer. And he had a very, he would have answered your question with a strong German accent. He would have said, yes, we absolutely understand speciation. And I have to say, uh, I think Meyer's understanding is still completely solid, even though there are interesting subtleties and distinctions that have arisen since Meyer's ideas became au courant. But his, his ideas are actually exquisitely simple. He insisted that almost all speciation was mediated by geography. You've got populations in two different places. Now, why is that? What speciation is, is, is the accumulation of genetic differences between two populations until they reach a point that they are so genetically different that they can no longer reproduce, okay? That's what speciation is. Meyer's point is they've got to be in different places. And so you've got population A, which is evolving independently, and population B, which is evolving independently. If they're in the same place, and the term out here is sympatric, then of course they're exchanging genes. So they're not going to become, and this is Meyer's general case, and I'll, I'll return to this in a moment, they're not going to become any more different from each other because every time there's a mutation arises in this population, it's trafficked into that population courtesy gene flow, right? But if they're in two separate places, and the term of art is allopatric, then that's not going to happen. So the basic Maya model is you've got two populations in two different places. They might be on island one and island two. And let's say they start off identically. So we take a, we literally take a single parent population and we split it in two and put half of it here and half of it's here. Then what happens? Well, over a long period of time, mutation is going to occur. Now, that is a thermodynamic inevitability. Mutation occurs. Copying errors occur in terms of uh, during the process of DNA replication. So, but genomes are big things. So different mutations are going to occur in population A from the mutations which are going to occur in population B, right? But they're both going to accumulate mutations. And so we've got a new mutation. Then there comes the question, what happens to that mutation? This deleterious, it's going to be nixed, being going to be 
knocked out of the population by negative selection. If it's a good, a beneficial mutation, then maybe we'll have a selective sweep. But again, that's only arisen in population A. It's not present in population B. So we've had a selective sweep to fix this new allele, this new mutation in population A, but not population B. Or, yes, neutrality. You've got a mutation which is new. It's of no consequence. It'll undergo a Markov process, either go extinct or maybe eventually do 100%. Either way, over time, each population is going to be exposed to different mutations. Each population is going to diverge genetically. So, so that is that is a, a sort of it's actually a very profound, but it's a very fundamental evolutionary idea that two separate populations over time will become ever genetically more different. Okay. So, what speciation? Well, speciation, as Maya argued, is the acquisition of reproductive isolation. In other words, the inability to interbreed successfully. So let's run this experiment. We've taken our parent population, we split into two, and we've just let it run for 100,000 years, okay? Now we're gonna take a male from this population, a female from this population, put them together in a motel room and see what happens. Okay, and let's say, look, they're, they're genetically quite different, but they can still reproduce. Okay, a baby arrives at the end of our experiment in the motel room. So even though they're genetically distinct, they're not new species yet. And now let's run it, say, for another 100,000 years. So it's a total of 200,000 years. Now we take a male, a female, book the same motel room. It's a well-controlled experiment. And what do we get? No baby. So what do we got? These are now reproductively isolated. And look, there are all sorts of ways in which they could be reproductively isolated. Um, and again, Maya has a sort of chapter and verse on this list of isolating factors. But ultimately, it comes down to this, that these two populations are genetically distinct in some way, such that they're incapable of reproducing. So that is the standard, that's what we'll call the Ernst Meyer idea. And for me, it's perfectly straightforward. I mean, that, that's, that has to happen. Where the controversy arises are two factors. One is, what about situations where you've still got some genetic connection, connection between the, the diverging populations? And so that's sympatric speciation. And the, and the second situation is, Maybe when you've got a complex situation where you've got partially diverged populations, which can still somewhat interbreed with other populations, so on and so on. In other words, it's not quite as cut and dried as Ernst Meyer would have us believe. And I think that's perfectly right. And we know, for example, that there are interesting instances of what, to use the term from a phylogenetic perspective, we would call reticulation, where you've got sort of got a family tree where you've got sort of limbs which weirdly move horizontally in other words interbreeding across notional species and and the integration bit of neanderthal material into our species is a classic case in point but it's a sort of semantic issue if humans and neanderthals can interbreed which they manifestly could because you ricardo and i both have some neanderthal material in our genomes, um, perhaps we shouldn't call them different species. Perhaps by definition, under a strict Maya notion of species, we're members of the same species. But then again, this is interesting. 
humans, we don't know exactly, but maybe we first met Neanderthals when our ancestors, uh, well, there were Africans coming out of Africa, but they would eventually become Asians, Australians, Europeans, and so on. And that was maybe, what, 80,000 years ago. Um, there's a big error bar on that on that uh, estimate. Uh, we met Neanderthals then, but and we interbred, fine. But what you might expect then the two species become one, okay? Because there's interbreeding, so they all just merge into one. It's not what we see in the fossil record. You see, there's distinct Neanderthals and distinct moderns. So we'd suggest maybe there was natural selection acting to keep them apart. And so the, this. So, uh, Look, this is an ongoing area of research, so I'm not going to give a definitive judgment on it, but it, it points up to the fact that things ain't as simple as Ernst Meyer would have them. The other thing, as I said, sympatric speciation. Ernst Meyer basically said that it couldn't happen. We have evidence that it can happen, though the question is certainly still out. The jury is still out on how often it happens, how important it is relative to allopatric speciation. There's essentially two ways in which sympatric speciation can occur. One is through sort of a weird chromosomal anomaly, probably in meiosis, some kind of non-disjunction event. We see this a lot in plants. Uh, where maybe you double the number of chromosomes. Again, just because of a genetic and a meiotic error. Um, uh, and so suddenly you can't breed with the pair population because you've got the wrong number of chromosomes, okay? Um, and the joy of being a plant is you can self. If that happened to you or me, Ricard, and we produce an offspring with the wrong number of chromosomes, Junior, sorry, is, I was going to say screwed, but absolutely not screwed, uh, is reproductively useless because there's nobody for him or her to reproduce with with the same number of chromosomes plants can vegetatively reproduce they can generate their own population with a weird number of chromosomes so that that gives them a huge advantage in that regard but so there's freaky chromosomal events which and that's essentially overnight speciation right because there was this non-disjunction event in meiosis bang you've now got the wrong number of chromosomes in junior Junior is reproductively isolated from the parent species. New species, speciations occurred, literally snap of a finger, right? But more interestingly, what about adaptively driven speciation in sympatry? So this is the idea that you've got, again, you've got a single population, we'll call it a parent population, but you've got two subpopulations, we'll call them A and B within that population which maybe do slightly different things. Okay, let's let's take the canonical evolutionary bio go-to example, which is Darwin's finches with the bill size. Now, let's imagine that we have a population with it. Population A has small bills and there's some very small seeds and it's very good at eating the small seeds. And population B has very big bills, a very big bill, and there's a big seed, lots of big seeds for uh, that those individuals to eat, okay? Now, and let's also imagine there are no medium-sized seeds, okay? So small seeds and big seeds, but nothing in the middle. Now, on average, assuming some kind of simple model of polygenic inheritance of bill size, when a large-billed bird breeds with a small-billed bird, they're gonna produce a medium-billed bird. But there are no medium seeds, and the medium-billed bird can't compete effectively with the small-billed birds for the small seeds and can't compete effectively for the uh, big seeds with the big build specialists. So what happens is the hybrids get 
came out by natural selection, right? It's disadvantageous to be hybrid. So what you have is gene flow, which is bringing populations A and B together. You know, it's always trying to merge them. But then you've got what we call disruptive selection. Disruptive selection is what I've just described, where you've got uh, selection in favor of one extreme, small bill, and the other extreme, big bill, and against the middle. So you've got gene flow, which is trying to scrunch everything into one population, and you've got natural selection, disruptive selection, which is trying to force them apart. And so it's a sort of empirical issue. That's a lot of natural selection. Obviously depends on levels of gene flow and so on between the subpopulations, uh, but it's an empirical issue. Can we see evidence of that happening? And the short answer is yes, sometimes we can. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to identify because we have to be confident there's no opportunity in the past for allopatric speciation if we're going to conclude that the situation we see is the product of sympatry. But so I would say we have a pretty good understanding of how speciation occurs. Allopatric speciation works. We know that sometimes speciation with gene flow, whether it's fully sympatric or whatever, can occur. What is up for grabs, so far as I'm concerned, is how much of one and how much of the other. But as I say, this is important, Ricardo, talk to somebody else and you'll get a very different answer. This, this remains, I think, interestingly, a very controversial topic in evolutionary biology. I think it's controversial because we can study microevolution, we can study population genetics, we can watch selective sweeps in action, if you like. So we can do that. We can study macroevolution. We can go to the fossil record and find Tiktaalik, the extraordinary walking fish, which was the sort of the intermediate between mer uh, entirely aquatic vertebrates and the first tetrapods, land-based tetrapods. We can do that in the fossil record, but speciation exists between those two domains, the directly observable or the fossil observable, and it's therefore very difficult to get a handle on, very difficult to study, super challenging, but is absolutely central to our understanding of evolutionary biology. Yes, natural selection is important, but so too is speciation. This is an Ernst Meyer thought experiment. Imagine a world with no speciation. So you have the origin of life, what, 3.9 billion years ago. It's an RNA molecule which can self-replicate and so on and so forth, right? And it's going to undergo natural selection, right? It's going to get better at self-replicating, eventually get replaced by DNA because that's a more stable storage molecule. We're going to put it in a membrane. We've got our first cell and that cell's going to get better and better under natural selection. But if there's no speciation, there's, which is splitting of lineages on the family tree, if there's no speciation, what do we have with us today? What we would have is a planet inhabited by one species and it would probably be a very multi-purpose, super hyper-capable microbe. It'd be kind of boring, to be honest. So speciation, it's not just natural selection, which brings us to where we are today, me talking to you across the Atlantic, using human brains and human technology. It's natural selection and that process of speciation. Don't ever downplay speciation. <laughs> but there are specific phenomena that I'm not sure are well understood yet, like, for example, 
uh, and I hope I'm saying this right, isn't it the case that as we move from the poles to the equator, we find more species more densely packed? I mean, do we already have any sort of explanation for that? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, so that is a well-established so-called uh, latitudinal gradient in species uh, number, species density. Um, so this is a, a sort of evolutionary question. It's also an eco it's, I think it's more of an ecological question. And I think you're right in saying we don't fully understand it. We have four or five pretty good ideas as to why things are the way they are that way. And a lot of it stems from a, a simple idea, which is the fact is that in the tropics, things are pretty stable. Yes, you might have a wet season and a dry season, but it's you, it's fairly straightforward. You know, the sun rises at six in the morning and goes to bed at six at night and so on and so forth. Now, up here where I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which has a brutal continental climate despite being on the ocean um summer it's going to be super hot it's, it's sometimes it's going to hit 40 degrees winter it's sometimes down at minus 20 degrees i mean but i don't know why anyone lives here by the way um <laughs> unfortunately my employer is showing no signs of upping and moving but um now imagine being a an organism a species trying to make a life up here now, I mean, there's so various ways to do with it. You could be you could be migratory, so you maybe head south every every winter or whatever, um, uh, or you could go into some quiescent phase during the winter or whatever. But the bottom line is, your a lot of your resources are going to be tailored for coping with the extreme variation in seasonality. Okay. Now, I live in the tropics. Yeah, it's a little bit drier now and a little bit wetter then. I don't have to worry the whole time about that kind of fluctuation. So what does that mean? So in other words, from a sort of climatic and a seasonal point of view, the tropics are much more stable than temperate and boreal and well, uh, uh, polar latitudes, right? Um, so that means that uh, the facility for specialization is much more developed in the tropics than up here. I can't specialize up here because I've got to contend with five different environments. In the tropics, I can really specialize because the environment is basically constant. And this is this same argument is is given an evolutionary. So that's an ecological argument. It was given an evolutionary spin to some extent uh, if we think in terms of um, the ice ages. So thank you, we've got a sheet, Boston was under a few kilometers of ice when, you know, 20,000 years ago. So it's in a sense, but the tropics were not, the tropics were always the tropics, right? Yeah, climate was different, but it was still basically stable. So in a sense, you could say that Northern and Southern climes, so you've got North and South Pole, and you've got the ice caps moving North and South respectively, right? Um, so the organisms which are inhabiting places like Boston are just sort of recovering from or reasserting themselves after those phases of ice age. So again, so that's instability, if you like, of climate on a much larger, on an evolutionary rather than ecological time scale. But that too is going to have an impact on 
the evolution of species in situ. So obviously there are, there's another 20 other theories on this, but I like the idea that basically the tropics are stable environments which permit the evolution of specialization. You don't have to remain a broad generalist, whereas up here, down there in Patagonia, you've got to, you've got to evolve adaptability to a whole range of uh, climatic situations, in which case becoming super specialized simply is not feasible. Mm -hmm. So let me just ask you one last question uh, about evolution in islands. What are the sort of things we can learn by studying how it occurs in those kinds of environments? Oh, well, as you probably know, islands are famously iconic in the history of evolutionary studies. And for good reason. Uh, and let's think about it. Darwin was inspired by what he saw in the Galapagos. Wallace was deeply influenced by comparing patterns that he saw of the distribution of organisms on Southeast Asian islands. Islands are, in many ways, the best way to study the evolutionary process because they are discrete, independent populations. So you can actually get a handle on them. If I'm studying a population somewhere in Kansas, then I've got individuals coming in from whatever the state next to Kansas is. I've got Everything's a mess. If I'm studying a population on a small Galapagos island, that is it. So it's a constraint. So I can actually get a handle on what is happening. And think of the famous studies of Peter and Rosemary Grant on the Galapagos finches. They, they're on a tiny island of the Galapagos. They have marked and taken blood from and therefore gen genetic analyses of every individual on the island. And they've been able to monitor exactly the amount of forage, the amount of food, the amount of resources on the island as well. So that's one of the great virtues is the smallness and constrainedness of islands. But the really cool thing about islands is what happens evolutionarily on islands. Let's think of a Galapagos island, which is a so-called oceanic island. So we tend to, we call them continental or oceanic islands. This is a distinction actually Wallace made. A, a continental island is just a bit of an island, a bit of a mainland, which gets with the change of sea level water. We're not interested. Those are just sort of subpopulations of the mainland. What we're interested in is a brand new island created by volcanism. Got a volcanic <clears throat> three million years ago, suddenly got an island, which is now just pure lava. Now, what happens to that? Well, eventually, over time, erosion and so on, and we'll get blowing in of grass seeds and so on. You'll, you'll have a sort of ecological succession as species arrive. How do species arrive? Well, some of them, if they're birds, that's pretty straightforward. They, they fly there. But what about freshwater fish? There's a pond on the island. How do you get there? I mean, just by chance, right? They happen to be stuck on a duck's leg or something. I mean, it's some incredibly low probability event. So the population that appears on islands is a product of two things. One is the uh, intrinsic dispersal abilities of the taxon, as a birds versus freshwater fish. And two, this sort of crapshoot is a stochastic process. So what you have on, a, on our Galapagos island is, yes, we've got some elements of the mainland, but it's not like a full ecosystem 
from the mainland. It's not like we've just taken a chunk of Ecuador and parked it on that island. No, it's a weird, randomly subsampled part of the Ecuadorian parent ecosystem. It's an incomplete ecosystem. Okay, so then what happens? Then what happens is natural selection intervenes. The things that are there evolve to take advantage of the ecological opportunities caused by the incompleteness of the ecosystem. Two outcomes. I know we're short on time, Ricardo, so I'll keep this fast. I could go on for another four hours on this fantastic topic. Um, New Zealand. New Zealand has no native mammals other than a bat. No rodents, no shrews. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that there is an enormous amount of food in the leaf litter, which is where rodents and shrews and the like hang out. So there's all that, all that good arthropod invertebrate food down there on the forest floor, but there's nobody eating it. What a fantastic ecological opportunity. What we see, the bat that is there has undergone so-called niche expansion. Uh, which is it shuffles around on its, it, it fly, it can fly like a regular bat, but it spends most of its time on the forest floor, shuffling around on its wrists, being a mouse, being a shrew. It's expanded its niche to take advantage. That's evolution in action. Another beautiful example of Hawaii. Hawaii has no native ants. Ants are general predators, scavengers, eaters of small arthropods. So there's lots of food going that ants aren't there to eat. So what's happened? And this is amazing. There's a caterpillar genius called Eupathekia. It's a caterpillar. Caterpillars put leaves in at one end and grow and dump out processed leaves at the other. And they move very, very slowly, right? Those are caterpillars. These caterpillars have evolved to become sit and wait predators. They will grab flies as they fly past. In other words, they're being sort of fake ants. I mean, they're not very good ants, but that's just amazing. They've gone from being a sluggish herbivore to a vicious, striking predator. That's niche expansion. So niche expansion is sort of on a small scale. The large scale response is the best evidence of evolution in action we have which is so-called adaptive radiation. Adaptive radiation, famous example, the most famous example, is Darwin's finches in the Galapagos. So you have an ancestral finch, which arrived with maybe a medium-sized bill, and there is all this ecological opportunity. There's no other competition out there. So then the larger billed finches get to specialize on the big seeds and the smaller build, and so on and so forth. So what you get is a rapid set of speciation events producing uh, a whole diversity of adaptive forms taking advantage of the different resources on the islands. And I say, that's because of the incompleteness of island ecosystems, which stems from this colonization process. So if you want to see evolution happening, go to an island. And if you want to see a crisis happening in terms of conservation, go to an island. Why? Because I've just told you, you expect to see lots of endemics on an island because these are the products of evolutionary responses to the island ecosystem incompleteness. So islands are going to have lots of special only on this island organisms. And also, by definition, islands 
are small. Populations are small, therefore they're vulnerable. So it's no accident that islands are both the most interesting places on the planet from a biological perspective, and two, the most threatened by the ongoing extinction crisis. Okay, so let's end on that note. Just before we go, Dr. Barry, would you like to mention where people can find your work on the internet? Uh, well, uh, you try Googling Andrew Berry, that's as in B-E-R-R-Y, Harvard. Uh, you should be able to find me fairly easy. I think I mentioned this last time. It's a little confusing because there is a, um, a, he's now the general manager, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, well, of one of the NFL teams. He's also Andrew Berry. He went to Harvard. He's actually a fantastic guy. I haven't seen him for years. I think he graduated in 2008. Um, anyway, so if if when you Google Andrew Berry Harvard and you come up with a striking looking black guy, that's not me. Um, but if you if you Google Andrew Berry Harvard, uh, you should be able to find uh, a web page or two uh, dedicated to my um, to myself. Okay, so I'll be leaving links to your work in the description box of the interview. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure, Ricardo. A real pleasure. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now. And it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long and so if you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. And to consider making a pledge there, support the show. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araujo, Ethan Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, my producers is Web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, 
Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardos Frens, and Niroban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michelle Rugieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.